Indeed, he is the one who brings healing, healing of us not only physically, but even far more importantly, spiritually. And we give him the praise and the glory for that. This morning we come again to our study of healthy church. Notice the screen in front of you, the cross that is there. The cross um, uh, representing our church family coming around the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the truth of Christ. Our series is entitled, Healthy Church, Me and Us. So all of these messages apply to you as an individual, but also as a church family. Yes, thank you, gentlemen. Come forward. And if you don't have a sermon outline, I want to invite you this morning to lift your hand and uh, to get one. If you're joining us online, I want to encourage you, you can go to our website and print it out. We'll be looking at several passages this morning, and it will be a great help to you if you have it. If you have the ability to print it out, I would encourage you to do that. Healthy Church, this morning we come to yet another in this message. Two weeks ago, we looked at Healthy Church moving toward maturity. A healthy church has to move toward maturity, and that's maturity as individuals, and that's maturity as a church family. If a church has all very immature members, the church will not be healthy. And so God has called us to be a people who are pressing on, not only collectively as a church, but pressing on individually. Notice a couple of bullet points here, and these are not on the screen, but they are in front of you on the piece of, uh, on the notes that are here. Churches and church members mature as they fill in, grow up, and serve the Lord. One of the great things that is lacking in, in maturity is a realization that we are called to serve. And we serve God in many, many different ways in our families and in our homes, but we recognize that Christ came as a servant. Notice this next statement here. Many Christians are not maturing because they do not actively serve. They're not working in the kingdom of God. They're not involved with what God has told them to do, and so they remain infantile in their faith. There's nothing like beginning to serve and to obey God in his kingdom work um, that will charge you and, and inspire you toward growth. Notice that when Christians are not serving, they need to stop wondering what's wrong, and they need to begin serving others. And then we said this statement, many churches are not mature because their members do not serve. So I want us to be recognizing as this church family that God has called all of us to serve. You can find places to serve here in the life of the church, but also outside the life of the church, and you should be doing both. Um, I want to encourage you that if you don't know where to serve and where to start, you can call the church office and say, how can I serve? And they can have a conversation with you about that. Do you know that we have some people in the life of our church, they can't drive around town, they can't do all kinds of things, but they have found ministry of being on the phone and calling people and encouraging them. There's others who have found ministry of writing notes of encouragement to folks and sending that out when they're sick and when they're hardship, sharing a passage of scripture and caring for them. There's other members of our church that cook for others. They say, I'm not gifted with many words, but boy, I can sure make food. And so I can serve in that way. There's other people who come and use their technical skills. There's people who simply come to the great hard work of the nursery and the children's ministry, the youth ministry. 
I want to encourage you to be finding your areas of service. And the church becomes more healthy as you do. You become more healthy as you do. Well, then last week we looked at healthy church encouraging one another, encouraging one another. We looked at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Um, And this reveals that Christians help each other stay with Christ through the encouragement that comes from worshiping God and fellowshipping together, worshiping God and fellowshipping together. This is our call to help one another stay with Christ. What is your first and primary way that you can encourage your church? What is your first and primary way that every person here can encourage their church? Thank you. You got it. Show up. So I'm going to ask that question again. What is the first way that you can encourage your church? Just showing up. When you show up, you're encouraging your church. Now, you can encourage the church more when you sing. You say, oh, pastor, you don't understand my voice. I, I can't. No, 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 no. When we all put our voices together and we as a choir lift up praise to God, we're singing to God. We're singing to each other. We're singing to ourselves. That's what helps us to remember and celebrate the gospel. When you show up and when you sing, when you stand and pray for the church, when you greet one another, when you get to know one another, when you bear one another's burdens, you know, after this service um, ends, it is very likely that in different places around this room, folks will be seen either sitting down and talking or standing and talking, and very often they'll huddle up and say, let's pray about that. Let's pray for you. There's job interviews this week. There's marriage troubles this week. There's health issues this week. There's financial problems this week. There's there's broken relationships with people at work or people at home or extended family. And we care for one another in that way. So we encourage one another. A healthy church encourages one another. And the primary way that you encourage is when you show up. Well, I rejoice in that. Notice and fill this in. Your presence and participation is important to everyone, to everyone. Even the people that you don't know, whether you realize it or not, it is important to everyone. So healthy church, moving toward maturity, all of us growing up, serving God and obeying the things he's can. Healthy church, encouraging one another. Well, this morning, I want us to look at a very, very important passage and a very important concept. And the message titled this morning is Healthy Church Separate from the World. Healthy Church Separate from the world. And this has to do with you as an individual being separate from the world and the church being separate from the world. I went off to seminary in 1992. I was only five years old when I went. <laughs> I went off to seminary when I was, I don't know how old I was, blah, blah, blah. And it was. 1992, my first year in seminary, uh, 
kind of an evangelical world shattering book was released by a guy named John MacArthur. And the title of the book was Ashamed of the Gospel. This is the copy that I bought at that time. It's changed in its cover a little bit since then. But in 1993, this book was published. And I want you to notice the title of the book, Ashamed of the Gospel. And then listen to this, when the church becomes like the world. When the church becomes like the world. Now, we want to clarify that it's when the church as individuals become like the world, and also when the church collectively, when it's church life that becomes like the world. You see, around 1993, we had had about 10 years of something called the church growth movement. And in fact, more specifically, that that had been going on longer than that and the inceptions of it earlier than that, but something called the attractional church movement. The idea was, is that, well, the world isn't attracted to the church anymore, so we have to make the church more attractive. And it was during this time that churches began to look like the world. This is when church buildings were made to look very modern and, and, and nothing wrong with modern except that when we start to mimic all the things that the world is used to, when we, when we start to look more like a bar, when the lights have to go down, there's, a, there's no light and the music has to go up and there's, a, there's an appeal to the sensibilities that are interested in the culture more than to the interest of making sure the heart of each individual is being brought before the Lord in His Word. Sermons were sought to be, become more entertaining. There were more need for jokes and more need for antics and more need for all kinds of other elements in a sermon that really strayed away from the clear teaching of God's Word verse by verse. Instead, there were emotional appeals to creativity and that which was cool. And many of, many of those appeals were playing off of popular culture. And so a sermon series may be about the top 10 blockbuster movies of the summer that are going to be out. Or maybe it has to do with the top list of songs that are being played on the radio. Or maybe it has to do with the top 10 ways for you to become a better success, for you to have successful relationships, for you to be a winner. John MacArthur was seeing and hearing this movement and seeing and hearing and feeling, sensing the danger of that. And when I was in seminary, that book was released, and it created shockwaves throughout evangelical culture, condemning much of the abandonment of the gospel and thinking that people are too dumb, people are too unspiritual to sit down and listen to God's word being taught. This was a grave mistake of many pastors, this was a grave mistake of many influencers 
for the sake of the gospel, causing the world to come into the church. Well, what's interesting is about 115 years before John MacArthur wrote Shame to the Gospel, there was another guy. Oh, I'm sorry, you should have the next slide guys up where they can see that. That's John MacArthur um, uh, with that book. That's one of the preachers that we just had um, during this week. Notice the next slide, the world. About 115 years before that book was published was another book published. In fact, in 1878. And it was by J.C. Ryle. And you see Pastor Ryle here. He was an Anglican minister for 40 years in Liverpool, England. He lived from 1816 to 1900. Nobody knew that his beard would become so popular um, in this present day and time. He probably would have been proud for that. Actually, I don't think he would have cared. But he was an amazing, faithful preacher of God's Word. If you've heard me preach, you've heard J.C. Ryle. If you've heard John MacArthur preach, you've heard J.C. Ryle. Like Spurgeon, he was one of those who was holding on to the Word of God when through modernism and through all of the industrial age, people were walking away from the Word of God. This was one of the men who said, no, people need to hear the Word. They're intelligent enough to hear the Word. They need to hear the Word of God taught clearly, and he sought to do that. Well, this morning, I want to share with you J.C. Ryle's sermon entitled, The World. I want you to see that almost entirely what I'm going to share is something that he wrote, listen to this, 145 years ago. And it could not be more relevant today than anything else that could ever be preached. Why? Because it is indeed the Word of God. I first, before we jump into his outline and what he shared with us, I want you to see here on your outline 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And I want us to see this text and, and notice it here in verse 16. Notice what it says here. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he says to them, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now put above the temple of God me and my church. It's you personally and your church. So what agreement has the temple of God? What agreement do I and my church have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God as opposed to the dead gods of the idols, as God said, and then he goes to quote, and I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is quoted numerous places, most notably at the end of the Bible. When God is describing how he will be with his people after the final judgment, that this is the great plan of God, that there will be no other gods, and that his people will be with them and he will be walking with them. Look at verse 17, and this is our key passage. Therefore, go out from their midst 
and be what? From them. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Can we read verse 17 out loud together? Let's read it out loud. Everybody clear your throat. Are you ready? I want you to read first time through. Look at verse 17. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch, touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Well, let's notice and see here. I can't resist but make a few observations before we jump in. Look at the context of this is that believers are not to be, underline this down there in that context area, believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We'll talk more about what does that mean, unequally yoked, in a moment. But why? Why should believers not be unequally yoked with unbelievers? The wider context is that God's people are radically different than the rest of the world. They have a fundamentally different identity. It would be hard to overstate how true that statement is, and the depth of that statement. If we truly understand what God has done when he comes and saves someone, when he takes them and brings them into identity with him through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, lifting them out of the pit, lifting them out of the world, we have been given a totally new identity. And notice this that we see in this passage, that God's covenant promises to Israel are applied, fill it in, to the church. So the covenant that he makes with Israel is the covenant that he's extending in a new way to the church. And we see this in 2 Samuel 7, 14. We see it in Isaiah 43, verse 6. We see it in numerous other places. But notice up there in verse 18. Look what it says in verse 18 in the box on the page. I will be a father to you. That comes from 2 Samuel 7, 14. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. That is coming from Isaiah 43, verse 6. Both of which are dealing with the covenant that God has with his people. And then we see this. The church is the fulfillment of God's covenant people. And they're being restored under, fill it in, being restored under the new covenant. In just a few moments, I'm going to read the passage from Corinthians where we hold up the cup and we recognize that Jesus said on the night before he would be executed, for us, this cup is the new covenant of what? Of my blood. Let's say that out loud together. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. One more time. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. You see, it's Christ's blood, not the blood of a lamb, of a goat, of a bull. It is the blood of the Messiah himself that every other sacrifice has pointed to. And he says, this is the new covenant of my blood. I have fulfilled the law in this. And now when you come to me, you are coming and walking in the new covenant of my blood. This is Christ's covenant. This is the mode of our salvation. 
So this reveals, fill it in, this reveals the radically different spiritual identity of God's true people. So the difference is the people of the world versus the people of God. And we see that the people of God have a radically different identity. Well, let's notice here a few things. Number one, number one, we need to recognize that the world is a source of great danger. The world is a source of great danger. It's it's not a joke. It's not um, something that is that is humorous. It's it's not something that is a side issue. We need to recognize that the world is on its way headlong away from God. And God's people cannot be in and of the world and be right with him. Notice these things. First of all, we're not talk, when we talk about the world, we're not talking about the material world. We're not talking about creation. You see, creation is all very good. Now, curse came into creation, but there's not, I mean, there's not a sunrise that's a bad thing. There's not a mountainscape that is a bad thing. There's not a, a beautiful aspect of biology that is, this, that is this wrong thing. We see that it has been tainted with sin, but the material world, into, for you and I to be in the world, in the material world, and to appreciate the world of, listen, created order, That is a beautiful thing to appreciate. That is a beautiful thing to enjoy. Right up to the point where we begin worshiping it. How many times have you heard somebody say, oh, well, you know, my my Sunday hike is my church. Or my Sunday fishing trip is my church. You know, how many times have people said, you know, I really don't need the church when I can go and sit on the edge of the river and watch the water flow and see the sun glisten off the river. You see, we can be guilty instead of worshiping the creator, we can begin to worship the creation. It is not the creation that will save you. It's only the creator that will save you. But we need to recognize that when we're talking about the world this morning and when we look at these passages, we're not talking about the physical created world. We're talking about something different. Notice this and fill it in. The world refers to those who think of this world's things and not the world to come. The world is those who, so it's, it's the body of people, it's the body and the mindset that is present of this present age that is devoid of God. You see, notice this, that they think more about earth than they do of what? Of heaven. Do you think more about things of earth than you do of heaven? I'm here, I kind of have to. Yeah, but when you really begin to consider, when you begin to marvel, when you begin to really think deeply about things, does heaven play into what you think about or is it always all about this present moment? You see, the world, they think more about time than eternity. They think more about this present moment, perhaps more ambitious for the things of this present life, or perhaps more fearful concerning the things of this present life, living in fear or living in ambition for this life instead of the life that is to come. 
which is far, 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 in fact, immeasurably more important and lengthy. You see, the world, they think more about the body than the soul. Whether it have to be with all the adornment of our body, the look of our body, the, the, perhaps even the health of our body, nothing wrong with health. And, you know, it's good to kind of groom yourself a little bit. That's respectful to everybody. It'd be pretty scary. Hey, next Sunday, why don't we all, no one is allowed to do their hair before they come to church next Sunday. <laughs> we'll just call it Bedhead Sunday. How about that? Now, that's not a problem to some of you. It would be no different. Uh, looking at Nicholas. Nicholas, you can come just as you are, buddy. You don't have to worry about it. But, you know, there's a difference in just respectfully taking care of yourself for, your, for others and that which makes sense for your health and that which is very often in the world an obsession I mean, money that should be being used for other areas of responsibilities of life or going to a certain mark or a certain label or going to a certain hairdresser or a certain gym or whatever. Again, nothing wrong with, it, with balance there, but when the world, when you look at the world, the world's obsessed with these things and Christians can become obsessed with these things. You see, the world, they think more about pleasing man than pleasing God. That's really the bottom line. That we're looking at the things here and now, and we're looking at the things of ourselves or others as opposed to the things that are truly eternal. What we need to see is that Christians are called to renounce three things. Christians are called to renounce three things. Fill this in. We are called to renounce the flesh. That is our fallen flesh, that we do not give in to all the desires of the flesh. There's lots of things your, your flesh would love to focus on. We are called to renounce the work and the call of the devil. This is Satan. This is Lucifer. This is the fallen angel with a third of the heavenly host that has come to combat against God. Futilely, I will say, he will not win in his battle, but for a time, he has been given a leash. And you are called not to go with him. You are called not to play with him. You are called to renounce him and to renounce the things that are important to him. And this devil is called the prince of the power of the air, who in this present darkness rules and reigns over the affairs of the world on his leash. We see that this same devil was given leash to deal with Job. This same devil said, God, Job only serves you because you've blessed him. What if all that you've given him was taken away? Would he still bless you? God said, let's see. And God allowed Job on his leash to test his faith. And he said, oh, well, you, you've not let me touch him. I've taken away all that he has around him, but if he has sores on his body and if he is sick, he will no longer 
bless you. And God said, you can touch him, but don't kill him. So there's a very interesting position that we see in the book of Job that flows out into the world. It helps us to see and understand the problem of pain. It helps us see and understand the problem of testing for us. And we need to recognize that God calls us to keep our eyes and our hearts and our value placed not in the flesh, not on the devil, not in the things of the world, but upon him. So the world is a source of great danger. Let's look and see what the Bible has to say about the world. I love this section because this is how I have learned to study the Bible. This is how I have learned to preach the Bible. This is why I say J.C. Ryle is right in the way that he would pursue this. Look at number two, and under number two, we have lots of passages of Scripture. You need to read lots of Scripture to understand the Bible. It's good for you. It will be nourishment, and it will be food to your soul. Look at number two. The Bible has much to say about the world. Let's notice what Paul says first. Look at Romans 12, 2. There's, by the way, there's many, many other passages that deal with the, with the world, both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Here are but a few. But notice, and write notes around the edges of these as God is revealing things to you through his word. Look what Romans 12, 2 says. Do not be conformed to what? This world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So don't go and conform to the world, but allow God in his work to test and grow and teach you what is good and acceptable and perfect because much of what the world has, except where there's common grace, is not good. It's unacceptable and it is very imperfect. Look at 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12. Paul says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but look at this, but the spirit who is from God. So it goes from little s, which is an attitude, to big s, which is who? Oh my goodness, where are you all this morning? Are you looking at the verse? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 is where we are. Now we have not received, excuse me, we have received not the spirit of the world. You see, that's the little s. But what have we received? The spirit who is from God. So who is the big S? The Holy Spirit, thank you that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You see, that's what the, the spirit of the world will confuse you about God, but the spirit of God will cause and bring clarity to you. That's what he does, that he opens your mind to understand the things that are true. Look at Galatians 1.4, grace and peace to you from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from, let's say it out loud together, from the present evil age. 
You see, the present evil age. This is the world according to the will of God and Father. So Jesus, because of the will of God, has come to rescue us from this present evil age. Look at Ephesians 2.2. And he's speaking about the way that you used to walk before you became a Christian for those who are in Christ. He says, in which you once walked according to, look what it says, read it out loud. The course of this world. This is the way the world goes. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's the evil one. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9 through 11. Make every effort to come to me quickly because Demas, and look at Demas's problem. What was Demas's problem? Read it out loud. In his love of this world. That's what Demas' problem was. Demas was one who had walked with them, one who had served with them, but apparently Demas was a guy who actually loved the world. And he has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. The idea here is that Demas was supposed to stay. But in his love for the world, he is deserted. Not only do we see Paul writing about this, but we see much in the book of James, as small as it is. James, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the church at Jerusalem, the one who had perhaps James was the, the first letter written to the churches spread across the Mediterranean world. Look what he says in James 1, in this early letter to the church. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and let's read it out loud, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, the world has a stain. The world has a stain that soils the garments of the righteous. This is the picture that we are called to not be stained by the world. James 4, 4, he says to them at one point, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What is enmity? Right above that, hatred. That when you're friends with the world, you are hating the kingdom of God, the work of God, the purity of God, the spirit of God. This was written to Christians. One of the great problems of the modern church is that the church, both individually and the church collectively, very often is in love with the world, is in friendship with the world. Look at the next line of that in James 4, 4. It says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. Now notice what John says. The bottom of the page, page 2, look what it says. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John is writing these words, and he writes, Do not love the world nor the thing, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, 
is not from who? Is not from the Father, but is from where? The world. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Look at this. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, don't turn the page over. Just look right up here for a minute. That is one of the things that John MacArthur started to preach in a very powerful way about this. He's saying is that if you're a believer in Jesus, if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a a follower of Christ, it's going to show in your life that he will be not just Savior, as so to speak, but he is also Lord of your life. And so we see this beautiful and powerful picture right here Whoever does the will of God abides together. Now, you're not doing the will of God in order to be saved, but you're doing the will of God because what? You are saved. So the question is, are you saved? If you're saved, you will not follow after the ways of the world, but after the ways of God. Notice what John says on page 3. In 1 John chapter 3, in verse 1, right there at the top, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, now what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called what? Children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 through 6 John speaks of the antichrist spirit of the world. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is where? In the world. They are from the world. They speak, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Verse six, we are from God. That's the difference. We're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So do you listen to God? Do you listen to the preached word and do it? If so, the picture is here is that you understand the spirit of truth, that you are from God. If you do not, and you instead listen to the drumbeat of the world, to the values of the world, the ways of the world, and the ways of the world are not abrasive to your soul, that would indicate that you do not know God. And so a healthy church must recognize that we are not of this world. Look at 1 John chapter 5 in verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Can you circle the world, the word everyone? Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You see, it's not you, but it's faith in the one who is the, the high king of heaven, the ruler of the universe. Our faith is what overcomes the world, and our faith is not within ourselves, but our faith is in Christ. He is the one who has overcome the world. Look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
So the world is a powerful force that is at work against God's elect. But nevertheless, it is not victorious. 1 John 5, 4 says, when we are in Christ, we are victorious over it. Now, notice what Jesus said. So all of these are quotes of Jesus about the world. And we see in the first one, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 22, Jesus explains the parable of the four soils. Some some fell upon good soil, some among stony ground, among weed areas, along, and some along the roadway. And so notice what it says. As for that which was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, look what it says, read it out loud, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So we see this picture of the influence of the world being played out in Jesus' instruction of the four soils. John 8, 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now this is what he's saying when he's looking at unregenerate people. He's looking at those who have not come to faith in him. He's looking at the fallenness of our state, that we are born in sin, born in the grip of sin's great curse. Jesus is not of this world. That's an important thing for you to remember. John 14 and verse 17, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. So the world doesn't have the spirit of truth. The world doesn't have the Holy Spirit. John 15, verse eight through nine, 19. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. And there's the difference. Underline that. But I chose you out of the world. You see, they are no longer in the world. This is speaking to those who believe in Jesus. This is speaking to converts. This is speaking of the redeemed. And he's saying, this is the reason the world hates you, is because you're not with them. And therefore, look what it says at the end, therefore the world does, it hates you. John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have what? Overcome the world. In John 14, 17 through 14, I have given them your, he's speaking to the Father. Jesus is praying to the Father and he's praying for us. Starting point, folks, this is the passage I mentioned this morning that I was going to reference. John 17 and verse 14 through 18. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So Jesus is not asking that the Father would remove us rapturous from the world. He's saying in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
as you, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So before you turn the page, just understand, the idea here is not to retreat. We have been sent into the world for a purpose. This is God's great plan, that he has a plan to use us in the world, but we are not to become part of the world. Okay, what do you see in these passages? There's a lot of things that we could say here, but we want to see, notice here, the world is the enemy of the Christian's soul. And this is why friendship with the world will poison the Christian's soul. And one of the key things that we should recognize is that those who are not at war with the world cannot be at peace with Christ. Those who are not at war with the world cannot be at peace with Christ. And there's a couple of things here. Number one, this is Jesus' terminology. Jesus used the word enemies. And Jesus used the words of the fact that, that his spirit and that we, in his spirit, war against the flesh. We recognize that our flesh is at war with the purposes of God. The question is, are you at war with the flesh? Your flesh is at war with you, if you're a Christian. The question is, are you at war with him? The other way to say this is, if you are at peace, Christ will be at war, excuse me, if you are at peace with Christ, you will be at war with the world. Are you at war with the world or are you sleeping with the enemy? Are you at war with the world or are you sleeping with the enemy? How do we get separated in this? How and what is godly separation from the world? Number one, I want you to notice here, Christ as our example. Christ as our example. He was in the world, but not of the world. John 17, verse 14 through 18, we've just read. He is our example. He's, he's there in the world. We see how, when you look at the life of Jesus, you learn how to deal with the world. Jesus did not go enter into sin with the world. He entered into the presence and the work of those that were around him. He came and he did spend time with those who desperately needed to be saved but he did not enter into their sin. Their values did not become his values. Not only do we see Christ as our example, but we see Christ as our redeemer. He's more than just an example. He comes and he redeems us, and though we were of the world, Christ rescued us from it. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. What does it say there at the end? The forgiveness of sins. You see, but he delivered us from the domain of darkness. He delivered us from the world and sin. So we look to Christ as our example. We look to Christ as our redeemer and this changes everything. 
Now, J.C. Ryle gives a few points here that I think are good, and I've had to adapt them into modern age a little bit, um, just as I've had to do a couple of places. But I want you to see here letter A. What is godly separation from the world? What is it, what is it letter A? Notice this. Anyone who desires to come out of the world and be separate must steadily and habitually refuse to be guided by the world's standards of right and wrong. The world is not to be telling you what's right and wrong. God is to be telling you what is right and wrong. Notice here with me in these points that I'm making below this. That which is popular should be suspect. When you see anything popular around you, everybody's doing it, everybody's wearing it, everybody's going there, everybody's buying it, everybody's listening to it, everybody's watching it, everybody's enjoying it, and it's really popular, listen, it's a safe thing for God's people to go, hmm. Don't be like the moth to the flame, flying right into it. We need to look at what's popular and what everybody seems to be making such a big deal about. And we need to be very careful as we enter into it because Satan is a deceiver. The world is deceived and is at his beck and call on this. Notice this. Does it pass the smell test of God's word? You see, the word of God is what tells us what is right and what is wrong. We compare the things of this world around us to his word. Well, you can't do that if you don't know his word. That's why you need to become a student of God's word, one who knows God's word and loves God's word, and God's word reveals and and guides you through the path of this world. Remember this. Remember that nothing is right when God says it's wrong. And this is a real issue for Christians right now because the world is saying other things are not wrong. The world is saying, oh, no, this is okay. I know you, you heard that. I know that people used to believe that, but now we're enlightened and we know that this is... No, listen, look at this. Remember, nothing is right that God says is wrong. And that applies to abortion, that applies to the LGBTQ things, that applies to all the gender dysphoria and all of the... I mean, we've been given over to a depraved mind on this as a world. Remember that nothing is no big deal that God says is a big deal. I remember as a kid one time, I was driving a little fast going home at 15 years of age. Dad was in the right-hand seat, and he said, slow down. I said, slow down. What do you mean? And I just kept going. Actually, I didn't even say anything. I just ignored him and kept going fast on 40th Avenue right here across the street. And I came down there to that town, and I turned the wheel and, you know, went down Thomas Street, hit the gas again, had my foot in the carburetor, take off down there. And he said, son, I said, slow down. I get down to 39th Avenue, take a left, and I just kind of go peeling down the road and pull into the driveway. And Dad just said, son, as we got out of the car, he said, this is after church on Sunday, he said, I told you to slow down. Ah, yeah. And he said, no, I told you to slow down. And I said, Dad, and it, his voice was raised just a little bit. I knew he had, I had his attention, and he was getting my attention. And he said, listen to me. 
I told you what to do, and you did not do it. And I remember saying these words before the lights went out. <laughs> Would you just calm down? <laughs> My dad never abused me a day in his life. He gave me exactly what I needed, exactly when I needed it. When my eyes opened, I saw my mother's blue eyes looking down at me, and my ears heard, don't touch him, he's fine. <laughs> now, some activists can say, oh my goodness, he's advocating child abuse and everything else. That's so horrible. Uh, it wasn't quite as horrible as I make it sound, but there were, certainly was a moment when I needed to realize that what my dad said was important. In a much greater way, the Heavenly Father is looking at you and saying, don't say what I say is important is not important. And that's what many Christians do when they look at the world and they dance with the world and they play down the stream of the world on great ungodliness and they act like it's no big deal. And you know what? You can have a false sense of security if the idea that if everybody's doing it, it must be okay. And that can be true within the Christian community as well. Your guide is not everybody in the church. Your guide is what the Word of God says. And so you need to be very careful about these things. You see, the world's fill this in. The world's trivialization of sin should not go undetected in your life. You should detect when the world is saying what God says is no big deal. You know, the language that you use, the things that you click on and watch, the movies that you use, the shows that you watch, the things that you do. When you see the world's trivialization of sin, don't let that go undetected, begin to detect it. The world's twisting, not trivialization, but the world's twisting of morality should be expected by you and it should be rejected by you as a Christian. When the world says evil is good and good is evil, you should recognize it and you should reject it. Look at Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20. Let's read it out loud together. This is Isaiah, this is poetry, that's why it's put in a different form that is here. Isaiah 5 verse 20 is so apropos for our day and time. Look what it says in verse 20, read it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I mean, it's insanity. The things that are very obvious. So, we should not be guided by the world's standards of right and wrong. Letter B. Anyone who desires to come out of the world and be separate must be very careful how he or her spends his or her leisure time. What you do with your leisure time will determine much concerning 
your godliness or ungodliness. You see, this is a very big issue for the Christian's life, what you do with your leisure time. It's a big issue to our society. Our society wants to work less and less. In fact, it's very hard to find people to work in many cases. You go to restaurants, you go to businesses, you go to, everybody's complaint is the same. Nobody wants to work anymore. By the way, do you not see that that's an attack on God? Work is something that comes from God, and it's good. God was working when he created the world. He called Adam and Eve to work in the garden before the fall. Work is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Some people think work is the result of the curse from the fall. No, they weren't just running around in the Garden of Eden not doing anything. They were tending the Lord's garden. Work was important. Well, the world thinks that leisure time is everything. This is a very big issue for the Christian's life. Leisure time or personal time or downtime or time off or retirement are all huge in our society. Honorable work and honest business is a great safeguard against sin. Honorable work and honest business is a great safeguard against sin. When people are busy working, they don't have so much time to go screw up their life. It's very often that, you know, we've heard idle hands are what? The devil's workshop. Not a bad phrase. It's not in the Bible. You won't find it there. Exactly. But the idle hands are the devil's workshop. Proverbs has much to say similar to that. Notice here, hard work time is much safer than leisure time. Watch out. How a Christian spends, here it is, this is where J.C. Ryle is really meddling with us. How, Christians, how a Christian spends his or her evenings is a big deal. What do you do in, with your evenings after work? You see, the TV and smartphone and going out can impede or destroy your godliness. Scripture reading, prayer, hospitality, Life in community brings great godliness. But the world says, this is how you spend your evening when you're tired after work. And after you're tired and your defenses are down, what's happening? Here it all comes. Here's all the messaging of the world. You're tired and you're just, you're just sitting there receiving it as opposed to being watchful and guarding Much truth in that. Letter C. Anyone who desires to come out of the world and be separate must determine not to be swallowed up and absorbed in the business of the world. That's not just talking about business. It's talking about in all of the affairs of the world. A true Christian should work in an excellent manner. There's no doubt about that. Let everything that you do be done unto the Lord. But a true Christian should not work to should not allow work to get between him or her in Christ. And there are many who fall prey to this. Their job becomes their obsession. Their profession becomes that which guides them on everything. Everything concerning their church involvement or concerning their service to others or involvement in God's kingdom comes after their commitment to their work. You should be very careful about that. 
letter D. Anyone who desires to come out of the world and be separate must abstain from all amusements and recreations that that either in, that are either inseparately linked to or dominated by fill it in sin. And friends, are not most of the amusements that come our way in this day and time linked or dominated by sin? I mean, notice this. Are sinful and godless themes the basis of your entertainment? And I'm going to really meddle with you now. Murder, she wrote. What's wrong with that? It's been out there forever. She's a sweet lady. Watch out. Everything's about murder or adultery, fornication. What is fornication? It's having sex when you're not married. That's wrong. It's evil. The Bible says fornicators don't go to heaven. Is your life characterized by that? Do you say, well, I don't do it, but I, but I watch it. Are you entertained by it? Has the devil duped you into that? To where more and more the storylines of the world that are wicked and evil against the holiness of God, everything that Jesus said no to, everything that Jesus died for, that you just, you steadily come along and imbibe it? You steadily come along and just drink it in? And you begin to think it's no big deal? Sexual intrigue, infidelity, violence, murder, crime, lust of the world, greed, fame. <clears throat> you know, used to you'd go to the DVD store and see all of these DVDs. Now you, you flip through whatever, the Netflix or the Prime or whatever. I mean, just the covers of it should help us to see that they're not from God. Are sinful, godless themes the baggage of your entertainment? Maybe it's not the center of it, but maybe it's the baggage. Maybe it's, it's just kind of laced in there. Or is your recreation, excuse me, um, look at the next page. You can go to the next one, letter E. Maybe they're not based in sin, but notice this. Anyone who desires to come out of the world and be separate must be moderate in the pursuit of interests, hobbies, and recreations. It's okay to have interests, hobbies, and recreations, but we need to be moderate about it. There are many Christians who allow sports, exercise, collections, art, adventure, travel, creation. They all have their place. That's fine. But look at the next point. Is your recreation simply out of balance? Are you obsessed with it? Here's another way to ask that. Do you think as much about those things as you do about God's kingdom? Or do you rarely think about God's kingdom and mainly think about those things? Does it take priority to your interests, your hobbies, your recreations? Does it take priority over serving Christ's eternal kingdom or does it distract from him? There's some people that have hobbies that are completely, they're, they're amoral. They're not right. They're not wrong. It's, what becomes wrong is their obsession with it. And they're ignoring God's plan. 
spelled letter F. Anyone who desires to come out of the world and be separate must be careful in how he or she allows friendships, partnerships, and close relationships with people who do not serve Christ. Now we're circling back to the main passage that we had come from. And here's the picture. And J.C. Ryle saw it then just as the apostle Paul saw it for the Corinthians. He's saying, be careful who you're yoked with for life. Whether that's in business, fill that in, in business, in various endeavors, or even in marriage, we see that Christians are not called to go be yoked with those who do not share our values. Does this mean you cannot have a a friend that is not a Christian? No, you should have friends that are not Christians. I, I have many friends that are not Christians. I could tell you stories that some of you would think I'm crazy. People that I've, I've sought to help come to faith in Jesus through a friendship with them. But we rightly are warned to be very careful that we are not connected to them in such a way that their morals and their values destroy our morals and our values. And you say, well, no, what about the, the business that I started with a partner and he does not know the Lord? It's very obvious. It's very true. But that was a long time ago before I even realized any of this. And even that, perhaps before I became a Christian, do I just cut that off and leave? Well, that might be a worse witness to him. But for Christians, as you're starting out, as you're going, be careful who you enter into business with. Be careful who you buy property with and start endeavors with. And certainly, this passage is saying, be careful who you marry. Now, blessedly, some of you have become Christians after you got married. Maybe your spouse has not. So what do you do? Do you leave them? Absolutely not. Do you seek to win them? Absolutely, yes. Do you seek to love them as Christ has loved you? Absolutely, yes. But listen, if you're a Christian, you do not go marry someone who is not a Christian. You have a fundamentally different identity in your spiritual life. And you know what? I could ask right now for a show of hands of the people that would say, preach it, pastor. (laughs) I mean, there's people that would say to you, especially as as we look to young people, and these days, middle-aged folks and others, uh, we just say to you, do not be unequally yoked with someone who does not know the Lord. Missionary marriage is a bad idea. The idea, oh, I'll marry him and he'll get saved. I promise. I know. I'll, I'll get him. I'll win him over. That's very naive. Look what it says in verse 14, 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has, right, has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal? But, excuse me. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Circle it, verse 17. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Indeed, may we be very careful how we walk in this life. Our spiritual life will be strong and healthy as we properly look at the world. Questions for application. Where are you with the world? Where are you with the world? Where are you with God? Where are you with the world? Where are you with God? Are you more in love with the world than you are in love with God? Number two, has the world gotten in the way of God in your life? Are there sins that you choose over Him? Are there values? Are there things that you value more than Him? Number three, have you made partnerships with the world? What do you do? You seek God's wisdom that you may know how to deal with those things, but yet not be brought down into them. Would you stand with me for prayer? Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to rightly look at the world and understand what you have done. And I pray that we would, as a church, allow this message this morning to rebuke us where we have fallen asleep with the enemy. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to love the things that you say are right more than we love the things that the world says are right. Father, I pray that we would see the cost of our entertainment or the cost of these things that the world wants to entice us with as a very small cost compared to the great reward that there is in God through Christ Jesus. Lord, that we would gladly turn our eyes away from the things that are evil, that we would gladly say no in our heart to the things that are wrong. Lord, that we would pursue righteousness with joy, knowing that just in a little while, we're gonna be with you. Lord, how foolish we often are when we look at this time in front of us and place it as a higher value than eternity. And I pray that you would grow us, Lord, in this. 
that Sheridan Hills would become a more healthy church of individuals who have said, I don't want the world. I want the Lord. I want the Savior who died and is going to make all things right. And I want the world that he promises next. So Lord, help us with this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.